0: I think that online presence is really, really important. And it's how you can it is how you can communicate with your supporters. That's where they're living their lives. So it is really important as a charity. We create assets and tools that talk through those methods. So for example, at Teenage Cancer Trust, we did big campaign which was best you know it's about best to check for young people checking for signs of cancer early and we delivered all of that through tiktok through tiktok influencers so we created ads we created supporting information for that online and and that's how that campaign was delivered because that's where young people live at the moment and that's who Mm -hmm. we were trying to reach so yeah it's really important i think it's easy to yeah it's easy to um try to it's yeah it's about being targeted i think Uh being really targeted online
1: Hello and welcome to episode 16 of On the Same Landing Page. This year, to coincide with Google Ads grants that we're helping charities apply for, we've focused the podcast on issues affecting non-profit organisations across the UK. Now more than ever, it's becoming increasingly tough to raise funds, get your message across amidst the 24 news cycle, and recruit volunteers, staff and donors. So as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Astra Newton, Head of Advertising. Astra, can you say hello in a non- European language?
2: Oh, um, hello. And well, it's technically Latin, isn't it? So it's all Latin, but um, just to fulfill the brief. Ni how? Yes, that's Mandarin.
1: <laughs> okay, brilliant. <laughs> Put you on the spot there. And we're very lucky to be joined by Katie Cartwright, the head of regional fundraising at Action for Children. Before that, Katie has held senior roles at Teenage Cancer Trust, Alzheimer's Society, Cancer Research, and many more. Katie, hello, and thank you for joining
2: us. Thank you for having me. Katie, can you say hello in a non-European language? I knew you were going (laughs) to ask me that.
0: (laughs) Well, I want to say sawadikar, which is Thai, and I think it means hello. I remember I learned it in Thailand. We'll go sawadikar.
2: Love
1: it. (laughs) Nice one. I can't believe you both did that. I thought you were going to stumble. (laughs) Well done. So can we start uh, by, can you talk to me a little bit about the mission of of Action for Children, uh, for those that don't know?
0: Yeah, I can indeed. So Action for Children exists to ensure that all young people basically have um, a happy childhood, And we actually have a number of ways that we ensure that we deliver that. So we work really closely with children and families. And the focus is really on spotting problems early so that we can offer help when and where it's needed. So we do this, as I say, in many ways. We have lots of different kind of forms of services that we offer for young people from childcare to mental health support to parenting. You may have seen um, the John Lewis advert this Christmas, which talked about the support that we offer um, Mm -hmm. for care leavers. We also work with families who have disabled children. We work on services that help families to prevent and reverse child neglect. Um, And we also have services that offer parents themselves support um, so that we can, as I say, so that we can kind of tackle those problems right from the start. So there's lots of different forms in which you may see the services that Action for Children funds, but it is all around supporting um, children to have the happiest of childhoods.
1: Yeah, one of the uh, things I noticed, your website is huge, but you've managed to, like, encapsulate how many different things. There's so many different services on there. It's a great website, yeah. by the way, as well. Good user Thank journey you. and everything. Um, and and I noticed that, yeah, like, trying to cover all of those services concisely and in a way that kind of gets across the message must be difficult. Um, yeah. How do you uh, find a balance in terms of fundraising between... Activity that brings in like the most funds versus activity that's rewarding in other ways.
0: Yeah, and it is. I think it's probably it it. So as a as a charity, we have specific areas of focus at any one time, um, and so depending on the campaign or the activity that we're all running, it will depend on where we kind of focus and what kind of activity we do. Within regional fundraising, I think it can depend on the region. Um, we in regional fundraising. We have a number of different ways that money comes in into our into our pot, um, from working with regional corporates to working with individuals, to working with the Methodist Church, to working with volunteers. And I think it is, I think the real skill for a regional fundraiser is knowing what story to tell to what audience, and that's that's where our regional team have a real skill. They you know they know their areas, they know their regions, they know their supporters, and they're expert storytellers. So it is about finding the the link to that person with your charity um and I think that probably forms the basis of all fundraising whether it be major fundraising corporate fundraising or regional fundraising it's it's finding the story that that supporter empathizes with and the story that that person cares about Um, so it's hard to answer that because I don't think there's a there's one answer I think it's as a fundraiser the one thing you have to be is adaptable Um, and that can be you can pre-think that or you can literally have to do it on the spot when you're talking to perhaps a regional corporate who suddenly tells you that what you thought they wanted was something completely different so yeah we're definitely adaptable creatures
2: (laughs) in terms Hmm. of the regional fundraising katie how um how does that work structurally and operationally within the charity like obviously there's different regions where you get different funds are they then restricted to be spent in those regions or are they unrestricted funds
0: so ideally we will always try and generate unrestricted funds because Mm -hmm. as a charity that's that's where we need it and whether you're kind of working in a local hospice or you're working at a national charity those core unrestricted funds are what really allow you to make the biggest impact because at the end of the day the the service providers in the charity or the, the, the people that are managing the hospices they know where the money needs to go and it's not always for want of a better word, the sexiest place it's gonna go. Mm. It's it's those core funds, it's where you need it to make the fundamental elements of your charity work. So as a team, we always, always try to identify unrestricted opportunities because we know that's what makes the charity run the best and that's where we can make the biggest impact for our beneficiaries. However, as a regional team, there are times that regional supporters, whether they be corporates, whether they be individuals, whether they be groups, where they do want it it to stay in their specific region and I think we're seeing this more now than ever before post-pandemic where there's been this real focus on supporting community in looking after your direct area and your region so it's and it's really really it is one of the big challenges for regional fundraising I think is getting that balance right between really demonstrating the regional impact that we're making as a national charity because we are our services are local services, what we deliver in Sheffield will be very different to what we deliver in Norwich Mm -hmm. Um, and so it's getting that regional impact across while still you know emphasising where the biggest impact can be made and that isn't always by restricting funds Mm -hmm. however sometimes we do and I imagine every regional team is the same Um, and as I say we're seeing it more so than ever now post-pandemic when people do want to see the impact of their funds on their doorstep.
1: You talked about uh, post-pandemic changes to, to fundraising. Are there any other um, big shifts in, in the challenge of fundraising since you've been doing it and how's that manifested?
0: Yes, yeah, so I think, so in particular, um, so um, as, as you mentioned, I've actually only been at Action for Children for about six weeks. But I was at Teenage Cancer Trust throughout the pandemic and post-pandemic um, with a real focus on, on the regional corporate work and definitely in regional corporates. I, I have never, in sort of 20 years of working in that area, I have never known it as challenging as it was post-pandemic. And I think there's lots of reasons for that. Obviously, the the, the corporates themselves were coming out of an incredibly challenging time. They were coming back when, in a time where their workforce looked different and the way that they were, they were operating was very different. They still had people starting all corners of the country in their in their front rooms or their studies. Um, And so the way in which we fundraise has had to change fundamentally post-pandemic, and that's the same for communities as well. And I think we we still get, we still are, and I don't think we ever will get back to how it looked pre-pandemic in the sort of, the way in which we fundraise has had to change. People people have taken a long time to start going to events again. People have taken a long time to start coming together in the way that they did. And in many in many demographics, so we do a lot of work with um, older supporters, they're still not back to that complete comfort zone of, of going to big places, being together with lots of other people. There's still a lot of hesitancy for a lot of demographics who's, who would support us as a charity. So I think there's that real lifestyle shift. Um, And I think people seem to have different priorities now. Obviously we're we're going into the back, you know, we're in a cost of living crisis now, which is partly as a result of of the kind of costs of the pandemic and lots of other reasons. We won't get too political right now. Mm -hmm. Um, And so people's uh, pull on their income people don't have as much money to support um and a lot of the people that potentially supported previously are probably having their own cost of living crises you know um people who were very comfortable for i think we all are um feeling the pinch we were joking earlier about the fact that i'm freezing right now because we've not put (laughs) our heating on and i think there's a lot of people yeah with a, a lot of strength so it's it is a very, very different world. I think we now find ourselves in as the third sector and I don't think it'll ever go back to the way it was before. And so there's a real balancing act between finding a new normal, between managing the expectations of trustees and senior leadership who need us to start generating that income again, because most charities saw a real dip in income over the pandemic. So there's now that real, real pressure and, and need to start generating that income again but we're now trying to generate that income in a world where people have got less money so it does feel like the odds are against us at the moment that's for sure but ironically never have our beneficiaries needed it more so Uh, it's kind of it's a a bit of a crazy parallel we're sitting in yeah it feels like it should be part of the marvel universe perhaps but yeah no it's (laughs) reality
1: I mean, I remember that the online digital digital transformation was like the the way we were using it a lot in like agency world by like getting people uh, who, who previously could rely on events into like getting their websites sorted and everything like that. And I'm assuming yeah. that that has that has been a part of, of what you guys have been doing as well. Um, has, has there been any like, um, and not just where you are now, um, uh, but in previous charities, has there been any like really successful campaigns that have worked really well that have got brought digital um, mm-hmm. at, at the heart of it
0: yeah definitely and i think that was probably the conversation that every uh, charity was having during the pandemic was what what can we do on you know how can we maximize this online world yeah what's working now yeah. and yeah when i was at teenage cancer trust uh, we did a push-up challenge a facebook challenge that was incredibly successful it created a community of fundraisers and the income that it generated for young people with cancer was phenomenal and way beyond the expectations of what the team had that they thought that that would deliver and so that was fantastic but then of course the conversation turned to well how can we replicate it and i think digital and online is is a is a funny thing in you know it's a bit like when you you try to capture that viral moment of the ice bucket challenge sometimes Mm. there's no rhyme or reason as to why it specifically worked i think it's a little bit right place at right time i think Teenage Cancer Trust perhaps uh, maximised on the fact that, you know, they are a young charity, the beneficiaries are young, they live their world online, always have done, always will do. Um, but even at Teenage Cancer Trust, we were we were unable to capture that success again online after the push-up challenge. Um, at Action for Children within the regional team, we have um, an amazing product development team that are always looking at at ways that we can maximize income and the big focus last year was online fundraising you know how can we how can we generate that online community that will maximize income and and who know we I mean we haven't we haven't found that magic magic bullet and I think part of it is fundamentally because at the end of the day when you look at successful fundraisers the majority of the time it's because we've developed a community we've developed a relationship fundraising's relationship at the end of the day and as much as we try and as much as we're doing this in different ways post pandemic online we're having we're doing this now um obviously online yeah i just don't think you can capture that community online so it's it's a tricky one and i think there will be successful online fundraisers but i think a lot of it is perhaps a little bit of a right place at the right time moment so I don't, yeah. I don't. I'm sure there's digital fundraisers out there that have formulas and can say much better what will work and why it will work. Um, but I think from our perspective, we do rely on telling stories, developing those relationships, having that empathy with our supporters, um, where we can really connect with them on a much more less digital face.
1: Yeah, it's, 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 it's definitely like, we, we noticed as well with a lot of the campaigns we were running, there was like timing is so important. So there was a time yeah. where cost per click was, was low, and you could get some really good reach with everyone being locked in the house. And so digital yeah. was kind of the only way to go. And yeah. then cost per kick, even though everyone's now able to go out, it hasn't gone back down again, cost per kick just keeps going up so yeah. it limits yeah. the results yeah. you get and you can't just rinse and repeat the same thing, no. um, which yeah. is really frustrating because you, you think you've stumbled ac- across a goldmine and then it's like, yeah. okay, we have to get we have to keep innovating and keep creating new ways to get at this audience with something they haven't heard. Definitely,
0: so. I think yeah, that's such absolutely. a good point as well, because in the digital world, it is that constant expectation of innovation. and j- just because something works for a few months doesn't mean it always will, and it does consistently have to evolve. and that's incredibly challenging and it's and it's very challenging for for charities I think, who don't have that budget to persistently and consistently innovate. So it's yeah, it's a really it's a tricky one.
1: Millennials, isn't it? Yeah And yeah. you touched upon the cost of living crisis there. Um, like Drew, obviously the pressure that that then brings upon upon you guys as a charity is huge, mm-hmm. um, and you've already covered how that affects like the charity's goals. But how does that affect like you and your team and and the and the you know the pressure is so high now, and and the team that are actually putting those the work into those goals. How is it affecting you guys?
0: Yeah, I think it I think it is hard, and I think from a morale perspective in teams across charities in the sector. You know people are finding it really really hard and I speak to lots of colleagues in lots of other charities who are really really feeling the pressure at the moment. I think what's wonderful is the reason people tend to work in the third sector is because they do want to make a difference and so the motivation to do it is still strong and I know within my team obviously we see more than maybe some charities the impact of the cost of living crisis and why our fundraising and the work that we do Is more important than ever because so many of the families that we support are incredibly impacted by what's happening at the moment so it is hard but i think at the same time that we're finding it hard we're hearing more and more stories as a charity of why why it's needed so it's it's a bit of a catch-22 but in a good way if that makes sense or in a motivating way i would say because Mm -hmm. um yeah. So, it, I mean, it is hard. And I think teams across the country, across different charities are having lots of conversations about how to to maintain that motivation, how to keep morale high at a time when every team in every fundraising department is finding it more difficult than ever before. Not just regional, corporate, major donors, individual. Everyone's got huge, huge challenges. Um, And I think lots of charities are are, are having a real focus on well-being of their employees and ensuring that everyone's okay and really working on that. So that's brilliant. And I would say, from a cultural perspective, Action for Children and at Teenage Cancer Trust, it's been incredible, and they've really they are really tapped on into how to make sure that people are okay because burnout's high and I think it's high in the third sector because you kind of you have a lot like a lot of my team members do what they do because they're incredibly passionate about our cause and that makes it really hard to shut your laptop at the end of the day and go Mm. well I'm not going to worry anymore or Mm, when you potentially don't hit a target at the end of the month it's very difficult to just sit there and say well you know we didn't hit target but we tried next month because fundamentally that means that we can't fund a service or we can't support that family or and that's what's at the back of the minds I think a lot of the time so Burnout is high in the charity sector because I think the, the, the need to do what we need to do comes from a different place, but it's as hard as it is in any other sector, if not harder, because we don't have a product to sell. We're selling impact and stories and need as opposed to a shiny new iPhone or a fantastic mm-hmm. wrinkle cream or something like that. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's tricky. It is tricky. And I've spoken to lots of friends recently in the sector who are finding it really really tough really tough at the moment but yeah we we fortunately we we most of us are made a pretty good pretty strong stuff.
2: <laughs> <laughs> you said it does disproportionately especially like out of the frying pan into the fire after a pandemic and now into yeah. uh, a cost of living crisis and it does disproportionately affect young people so the work that you yeah. do is so important but in a way it's like kind of meta now I don't know I might be generalizing but obviously lots of people are using the cost of living crisis like in their own advertising as charities Mm -hmm. are you guys are as well to say look we need this money more than ever now um do you see uh like a a spike in obviously some people are still wealthy enough to give some after things Mm -hmm. like this like the cost of living does that actually increase fundraising for a little bit until it sort of dips down again I imagine
0: I think it it can I think it can shine a light on the need for something I mean we have an incredibly saturated charity sector in, in the UK and again without sounding crass I do think causes come in and out of fashion depending on what the media are talking about at the time or depending on what celebrities are supporting what charity at the time and so you do have your moments in the spotlight as a charity and I think as a charity what we need to do is is maximize those moments without being uh, without being crude and without taking advantage mm. of, of the beneficiaries because at the end of the day as a charity yes we're here to fundraise but what we're actually here to deliver is to, is is our is our case for support and that's ensuring that young people have a happy childhood so there is that fine line between yeah sort of taking a story that's in the media and running with it and really kind of and I think it's what, you, you know, as charities, it is what we used to do in, in the olden days. You know, mm-hmm. you did see a lot of sob stories. I remember some of, you know, some charities with the TV appeals where they were, you know, they were hard to watch. Mm-hmm. And I think it's finding that balance and, and, and it is a huge challenge in fundraising because sometimes what you want to say as a fundraiser because you know it will really strike someone hard and perhaps get them to put their hand in their pocket actually flies in the face of what you're trying to deliver for your beneficiaries Mm -hmm. Um, so it is a challenge but yeah you are right you are absolutely right I think um, depending on what's happening in the media or in you know in, in society in general it does give you the opportunity to to get people to empathize with your cause because they're hearing about it more because they're more aware of it it's very easy to it's very easy to turn a blind eye to something that doesn't affect you, um, mm-hmm. you know, and I've done many, many pitches in my time in charities, and the key to winning a pitch is to get the people that are sat around the table to empathize with your cause. Mm-hmm. so if it's in the news, people are empathizing with your cause because they are imagining themselves in that situation so yeah it's it's a balancing act, but definitely we you know we do see like for example the the impact that the John Lewis advert had for Action for Children was huge we definitely saw an uplift in support and interest in the charity um, as you know as a result of the amazing partnership that the corporate team won with John Lewis so yeah it definitely has a knock-on effect and I think as as fundraisers it's about maximizing that opportunity but then ensuring that you have longevity off it as well so it's not just a little rise because from a more practical budgeting perspective: How do you replace the impact of a John Lewis advert when you don't have a John Lewis yeah. advert anymore? <laughs> it becomes really difficult. So it's about maximising those opportunities, but ensuring that yeah they have they have that lasting impact and that legacy.
1: God, let's ask a question about um, transparency. Um, so this. From the outside, it looks like it's something that you probably have to do more and more and more on. Just because I know just from like conversations in the pub, you know, like, well, where does it go in? Like, is it going to this place, this place? And you mentioned it earlier, right? There's places where people want to see that pound. Yeah. But like an organisation is made up of boring bits. Yeah. It doesn't work if every single pound just goes to whatever they want to, what they perceive as as being value. Sure. Um, so how has that evolved, like in this, across all of the roles you've had? Like, has it changed a lot? Does that affect how you report on things?
0: Yeah, I think as ch- I I challenge someone to find any industry where you have to be as transparent as the charity sector, and that's right. Sure, that's right. You absolutely have to show that the as a charity, the money you are right, raising goes where you are telling your supporters it is going, and I would actually argue that the majority of the charities on the UK in in the UK are doing exactly that but what the media loves to do is find the odd bad apple or or paint the one-sided picture of the fact that you know that perhaps um, that that a CEO of a charity is perhaps getting paid more than society thinks they should be getting paid more because it's Mm -hmm. a charity and it's actually a real Bugbear of mine, and if ever I did a TED talk, I think this is what I'd do it on. And I find it bizarre that, you know, sure, we shouldn't have to have charities. We shouldn't have to charitably fund Cancer Research UK to find a cure for the many different types of cancers that there are. We shouldn't have to be expecting a charity to do that. But hey, that's the world that we live in. Until there is a way out of that, that's the way it's always going to be. And so I find it really bizarre that society finds it appalling that a charity like CRUK will go out and hire a CEO who is incredibly qualified, like beyond anything that a CEO of perhaps a commercial company is qualified for in medicine, in in fundraising, in economics, in all types of different areas, PhDs coming out of his ear, because he is leading an organization that is trying to solve one of the biggest challenges that we, we face as a society and yet people are appalled at the fact that he gets a salary that isn't anywhere near what the ceo of a games company who's creating mm-hmm. call of duty or fortnite and is making incredible amounts of income and feeding the pockets of fat cats and you know you could go down the moral reasons that you know that that industry is great or is it actually i love gaming i don't think it's that bad so that's painting a bad picture so but anyway you see the point i'm trying to make yeah like as a as a society we're happy with them getting paid shed loads of money but the guy that's trying to solve find a cure for cancer absolutely not we we should not absolutely be spending money and like I challenge anyone with that opinion to walk in the in the footsteps of a fundraiser of a regional fundraiser and see how incredibly hard it is to generate income for any charity no matter how great or how empathetic your cause is because it is one of the most competitive industries in the world Mm. and so you know if you want to raise income for a charity, you need to put the right people in there. And so the idea that you know we have to be tra- so transparent. And the minute anyone, I've had so many conversations with good friends who've said, You get what you get paid to, to, to raise income for a charity, isn't that wrong? And shouldn't the money be going towards the cause? And most <laughs> charities, you know, try to work towards that sort of for every, you know, for every pound raised that they're trying to work in that 2025p um spend. And that's incredible. I mean. How many businesses out there can say that that's the kind of ROI that they're working on? And not only that, but with minimal budget as well. I mean, the budget that fundraising teams have to generate the income that they do is, is tiny. You're expected to create something from nothing. And so, yeah, sorry, I've gone off on a bit of a tangent <laughs> <No>. there. <but laughs> absolutely. Yeah, absolutely right. Like, of course, we have to be transparent. Of course, we need to deliver the narrative and the reports that prove that the money that we are raising is going where it needs to be but there is a cost for that and I think the media are very keen to point out the fact that charities spend a little bit of money to generate a whole lot of good mm-hmm. and it's just a really odd narrative for me that we don't have that same abhorrence for companies that are creating really commercial non-needed things in our life yeah. And, yeah, I mean, the very know.
2: the very press printing it, right? is yeah, exactly, exactly. The kind of exactly people who are yeah. you know, funding things yeah. they shouldn't be. Exactly in. that. So yeah, it's so very it's well. very morally bizarre. But yeah, I agree yeah. with
0: you. <laughs> yeah, I <completely laughs> sorry, I totally agree. went off on one. Then yeah,
2: <laughs> no, no all completely... good. Please.
1: The bar the bar is so low uh, for politicians, but so high for CEOs of, of any charity. Yeah. It's, it's it's crazy. Yeah. Um, it is. You you uh well action for children do some really really great research we'll come onto it for segment two because we've Mm -hmm. we've got a report we're gonna we're gonna take take some bits from um how do you kind of use research and reports um how useful is that in the work that you do in terms of telling stories
0: yeah i mean it's incredibly important and i think you know we as fundraisers we go out we tell the story of of what we do. But the most important thing about the stories that we tell is why we do it. And we'll quite often, like I often talk to my team about sliding doors moments and like, in order to paint that story, like what are the two options? This, you know, this is life. So we used to do it a lot of Teenage Cancer Trust. You know, if a young person is diagnosed with cancer as a teenager, of course, if Teenage Cancer Trust doesn't exist, they would still receive their treatment on the NHS. They would still probably receive similar success rates for that treatment. But what elements wouldn't they receive? And you you know, you have a young person going through cancer treatment without Teenage Cancer Trust, and then you have the person, the young person going through it with Teenage Cancer Trust, who's getting the mental mental health support, who's getting the specialised cancer nurse who can deliver that information and that journey in a way that a young person needs it in a way that the NHS simply can't do because of time constraints and budget constraints. And I think, so there's that research and that impact of both why what we do is needed. So for example, at Teenage Cancer Trust, you know, what is the impact of mental health? What is the impact Sorry, of of chemotherapy on a young person's mental health? It's insane. It's really, you know, the impact is huge. It's lifelong. It stays with them forever. And so, and it's the same at Action for Children, you know, what is what is the impact of, of that young person, you know, that young person who's leaving care at that age, if they didn't have those services and that support that Action for Children have, how would their life look compared to how it would with that support? And that those impact, that research is what really feeds that narrative. And it gives us the, the ability and, you know, the expertise to be able to talk about that impact in the way that we do and that's that's what generates our support because we know we make a huge difference we know without us those young people would be living a very different life and when they, we know that they wouldn't be getting the support that they have so yeah it's so important I mean it's very easy to to paint a picture but supporters partners are you know they're much more sophisticated people have a much better grasp you know going back to what we were talking about before you know The work of the third sector is in the media constantly that impact. So they ask those questions. They want to know where their money is going. They want to know about the difference it makes. So we need that research and that impact and that evidence, because otherwise all we're doing is painting a fluffy story. And the impact of, of, of that pound that that person donates is huge and that's so it, yeah it's massive and we work really really closely with our impact teams um with our policy teams with our campaigning teams where you know from where that research comes and that really drives that core fundamental change that we're trying to do as a charity so yeah really important
2: awesome well, Jason kind of mentioned before, we, um, we we have a package that we've like started running for charities and we kind of broke down the three pillars of um, things that charities struggle with all the time online. Uh, their fundraising, their awareness and recruitment, and we've touched on them all. But you just touched on a little bit there about um, the impacts that you guys have. Like, How do you amplify the stories of the work that you do and get engagement from it? How, how is Action for Children achieving that? I mean, I can see that you guys do use ads as well. So... Part to that question is how important are they in that
0: yeah yeah very much so and I think probably a really good example is the secret santa campaign that we've obviously just just run over christmas where by bringing that impact to life through a story I mean we use tv adverts we also did a lot on social and online they are the that, that's where people are exposed to our work the majority of the time so <laughs> you know the majority of people that walk down the street Well, not the majority but a lot of the people that walk down the street won't have had direct impact with our services so they won't understand the difference it makes and and they fortunately won't be in a world where they potentially need those services so bringing those stories to life is what really gets people empathizing with our cause and i think like with the secret santa campaign for example the thing that that really struck me was the story so the story that we went out on tv with of the little boy whose grandma was looking after him um and she simply didn't. She was worried that she simply didn't have money to be able to put presents under the Christmas tree. And I think hmm. instantly having that real life story, you know, I'm fortunate. I've got two children. I'm fortunate enough. that I've never had to use a service for action for children. But instantly that brought to life me. What would it be like for my two kids if hmm. on Christmas morning they woke up and they did, you know, and, and so it's that ability to put someone's in you instantly put in the shoes the beneficiaries of our cause and I think and as that empathy and that that understanding of why that support is needed can only be demonstrated through stories I think so online you know that's where the majority of people live their lives now my my son he's 14 he's obviously next generation of of a charity supporter oh my god spends his entire life online he's on TikTok. Mm -hmm. he's on insta he's on be real i'm trying not to show my age now by not saying facebook but you know they they live (laughs) their whole life online but then my generation you know of 40 ish Um, you know i i'm still on facebook that's still where Mm -hmm. i so yeah i think that online presence is really really important and it's how you can it is how you can communicate with your supporters that's where they're living their lives so it is really important as a charity we create assets and tools that talk through those through those um through those uh, methods so mm-hmm. for example at teenage cancer trust we did a big campaign which was best you know it's about best to check for young people checking for signs of cancer early and we delivered all of that through tiktok through tiktok influencers so we created ads we created supporting information for that online and and that's how that campaign was delivered because that's where young people live at the moment and that's mm-hmm. who we were trying to reach so yeah it's really important i think it's easy to yeah it's easy to um try to yeah it's about being targeted I think Uh being really
2: targeted online yeah yeah Uh, you just kind of touched on it in a way this is just my last question and then we'll move on to segment two but how do you drive um people to find you online as well how do people come across you because you're in a lucky position where you're a national charity lots of people already know who Mm -hmm. you are so how do you tap into those new demographics and like your son and stuff as well obviously the internet's really important to that but what about I don't know maybe the older generations of people who don't really use the computers and stuff how do you do that then
0: yeah, it's an, it's an interesting one. And I don't know if I specifically have the answer, but it's it's a conversation that we constantly have around the table. So, you know, looking at our uh, Secret Santa campaign 2023, we're looking at ways that we can, you know, how can we drive people to our website to be able to to engage with our work and see what we do? Because as Jason's already said, like, it's a brilliant website with a whole mm-hmm. load of information there. but potentially you could say that unless you're going to look for that information you're not going to necessarily go and visit so we use lots you know a lot of our engagement points are done through the website so if somebody for example wants to sign up um so we will send information out to our regional supporters about our action squads for example which is a way in which you can support action for children you can uh pull together a fundraising group in whatever form it might be you might be a a bunch of mums that want to do a quick fundraiser you might be a corporate you might be um, a church group whatever form if you want to do a fundraiser for us and to drive people to the website the recruitment for that and the sign up for that is all done through our website so Mm. there is definite with every campaign that is a definite conversation that we have is kind of how how can we utilize our website to get people to do that and then obviously it's all monitored to see whether people are using it in that way but yeah the action squads is probably a good example um in that to do that to sign up for that you need to visit um a page that exists in our action for children website to be able to do that and and then from that you go on your support journey as an action squad
1: cool. you um i think you guys have a really good example of digital done well. I've, I've been to the uh, landing page as well from one of the AdWords that you have on Google and it's very cl- clear call to action straight away. There's not loads of different options for things to do. It's very clear what, what yeah. you're asking for there and it gives you an amount, options to do that, How different ways to do that. Then a bit more information if they're not really quite bought in yet. It's, it's, it's technical yeah. So if anyone's listening and wants an example of how to do Google Ads with a good landing page, Action for Children's, the one to do it, although that will put your cost per click up because people will be clicking Right, yeah, us. I was
2: going to say. <laughs> <Sorry about that.
1: laughs> um, let's go. Let's move on to segment two. While I'm getting it ready, we the qu- phrase I always get asked as a marketer is, um "Can you get us to go viral?" And it's like it's the one that kind of gets my back up. Like, oh my god, that's yeah. so so different. If everyone could go viral, then I don't know. I can't yeah, right. go viral. Otherwise, I'd be viral. We would be <laughs> yeah. viral. Maybe we will. Um, What's the (laughs) phrase you you get asked that kind of goes, makes you go, and then you get asked a lot?
0: Oh, gosh, that's a good question. Does it have to be, yeah, just in general? Yeah, yeah. I think the one, I don't know if it's so much a question, but the phrase that I hear a lot within regional, as a regional fundraiser, is we often get the, oh, so you you go out and do the collecting tins, yeah, don't you? And I think there's (laughs) this real... Um, And it's, do you know what, it's not just external, it's internal as well within the third sector. There's this real kind of culture that people believe that, you know, the regional corporates are with a warm, fluffy hug, uh, regional corporate, sorry, the regional teams with a warm, fluffy hug that we go out and we see Doris, who's done a coffee morning for us. And sure, that is an element of what we do in regional fundraising. And that's one of the reasons why the regional fundraisers are so awesome, because they do have that ability to build relationships with whoever, But I always say to the team, like we are the, you know, we are the sum of our parts. Like if you often look at the income within a charity, one of the biggest uh, benefactors of that income line for the entire charity will be regional. And the majority of that is from those little small incomes that you go out and get. Um, And, you know, if you look at if you break down the figures of, of. a huge charity, CRUK, for example, if you look at the majority of their overall income that comes from donations of £20 or less, it's huge. It's mm-hmm. ginormous. And not only that, but we don't just collect little donations. You know, we're dealing with partnerships that are worth up to £100,000 a year, which is huge, just from one um, one group or one supporter. But also, we're dealing with numerous supporters. So it's huge. So this kind of idea that the regional team of the little cute sister who goes out uh, we do a little we do a coffee morning with Doris, then we go collect a check <laughs> for £80, it's so so wrong and i think it really does a disservice to regional teams across the country because yes that is an element of what we do and yes i'm pretty sure that my father-in-law thinks that what i do for a living is go <laughs> and pack bags at tesco with a donation tin but it uh, couldn't be so it couldn't be further from the truth so yeah that's probably that's probably the thing the phrase that grinds the most
1: yeah my favorite thing to do is to ask my nan what i do as a job for christmas <laughs> <laughs> and she, she, she gives it a good go it's something to do with com- computers you do something yeah. with computers and I'm like yeah I mean it's yeah. true I spend a lot of time on them so do yeah, to, yeah.
0: to be um, fair so- literally having lunch today I went downstairs and my husband said to me so, so what is it that you do <laughs> I decided yeah so yeah so it's not just uh yeah it's not just them
1: <laughs> um so se- segment two was called fake facts before. What we do, and it basically we get three statements, and one of them is an untruth so that we may be if exaggerated in some way. Um this time we thought we'd take them from your reports, one of your a few of your reports, uh, mm-hmm. action for children. So I'm aware of the political issue of calling it fake facts uh when it's <laughs> your information. So I've renamed it for, for, th- yep. for this round. Um it's now called identify the wrong statement that will change slightly from a true statement for a balanced educational and entertaining podcast segment Um, okay I like it
0: rolls off the tongue yes
1: yeah I'm in marketing as you can tell I'm good at clearly
0: Um, so let's
1: go to the round oh let me share I'm possibly giving you the answers at the moment
0: good because I haven't read our annual statement yet. <laughs> this is a real yeah plan. so
1: I'm very aware that we are putting you yeah putting this in front of you um after only six weeks or so at the, at the business so I'm right. not expecting you to be any better than it's you, you and Astro are playing <laughs> on this one great
2: um
1: right so this is the first I can't move my the zoom things in a way, so I, I've got like a, a word that I can't see that I'm going to guess in this sentence because <laughs> there's something on my screen that's in a way that you can't. So um, for the for the listeners, I'm just going to read out three statements, and uh, Katie and Astra have to tell us which one is is incorrect. So the most common barrier to access mental does that say support Parental. is that it was Parental. not available. Mm-hmm. Oh, is it parental?
2: Yeah, parental.
1: <laughs> I've just got a box in that space. <laughs> um, 42% of parents have struggled to access at least one parenting support service in the last uh, five years. Uh, or is the fake fact that other, over 70% of parents are too anxious to ask for parental support?
2: oh, I think I... it might be 42% just because of all of the cuts. From government mm-hmm. over the yeah. last five years, I think it might. I be think that I'm.
0: One. I think I'm going to go with ah, oh, that one. Oh,
2: oh. sorry. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I'm going to go with the third one. I think
2: it's seventy <laughs> percent of
0: parents.
1: Okay, Jason is having a mayor. So I'm trying to, I was trying to remove the box and it clicks in. So yeah, number three. You we'll both give you that get one a point. <laughs> Um, Over 70% of parents are too anxious. That's the fake fact. So the other two, the other two
2: are true. Uh, Okay. Oh yeah, we were identifying the true ones there. We've got this, we're not, none of us are very good at this segment so far.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So um, on this one, can you, can you read it, Astra? Because I can't. Yes, uh, I will read it.
2: Um, So families on universal credit are more likely to face food insecurity. 10% Ten percent of children ages ten to eighteen are worried about their mental health, and forty-nine percent of families who need financial support experienced adult or child mental health concerns.
0: Well, we... I think it's the third one because Which I think the second one is much higher than that percentage-wise. So I'm going to go 10% third. Of
2: children ages ten to eighteen are worried. Yeah, so that's this fake one then. 10% of children, you think? Ah, oh, it's, it's like a fake one we're trying yeah, to get up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I,
0: think, I think it's, yeah, 10% is higher than Sorry, I'm with you now. Yeah, I think 10% of children ages 10 to 18 a word because I think it's higher.
2: Yeah, I'd agree with that. I'm going to go vote the same. Well done.
1: Yay. Oh, yeah. It's 42%.
0: actually 42%.
2: Um, yeah,
1: it's incredible. Wow. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's it's there's a lot more awareness, but a lot more yeah. damage being done by all of the digital devices and networks. And yeah, you and I ever think
0: you no, know, and I think it's gone up massively post pandemic and cost of living crisis. Like we've we've released, you know, going back to the research and the and statistics recently about how many children are aware of the the pressures and the impact on their parents, and so mm-hmm. that's then obviously having a knock on effect. And yeah, it's it's yeah, it's really worrying.
2: Hmm. OK, uh, so children's memories are precious from school and mental health. One in three children think that childhoods today are better than they were for their parents generation. Child poverty is rising everywhere except Wales. Ooh.
0: Now, that's a tricky one because I'm, child poverty is rising everywhere, but I don't know mm. if Wales
2: is the exception. Yeah, Um, one in three children think their childhoods today are better. I'm tempted to say that's the fake mm, one. I think that's the fake one. They never know how good they've got it, do they? Exactly. (laughs) I was going to say, my kids definitely wouldn't agree with that. Yeah. They think
0: they have it hard. I'd go, yeah, I think I'm with you. I think the second one.
2: Yeah, I think second one, Jason. Oh, Ah, no. It's Northern Ireland, yeah. Oh, really? It's because they're still in the EU, but anyway, I'll say no more. Um, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) For now, anyway. this is the the time the recording.
1: that's a future podcast yeah, <laughs> yeah. so when I, I did this t- I did this uh this test before you guys um with the researcher and um I, I only got one wrong so but I didn't give you a fair oh. go because I gave you the first, <laughs> the first <one. laughs> yeah. okay next one
2: uh parental mental health service is the most in-demand parental support service 67% of parents are unable to access an essential early years service the highest proportion of parents using early years services is in London. Ooh.
0: Um, I'm, uh, oh, this is a total guess.
2: Yeah, this is a tough one.
0: I think I'm going to go with the third one.
2: Parental mental health service is the most in demand. Mm, yeah, I think the third one also.
0: Mm. Oh, a
2: tough God, one. I, need to, I need to read
0: my annual report, don't I? <laughs>
2: actually education and development that is the on demand service fair enough right there we go and
0: that's the uh, that's What's the end well i did terribly i definitely need to do my research <laughs> in my annual report
2: we did some good speculating though so. we did i think yeah i think we sounded <laughs> educated when we were speculating <laughs> <laughs> no.
1: uh the final segment then uh, take it away astra
2: okay so segment three is um strategy analogy so we'll pull up a random word generator and Ugh. it does sound too exciting <laughs> but no I was like gosh this sounds hard I'm actually doing
0: strategies at the moment it's uh, yeah. well you don't actually
2: have to do a strategy it's more of an okay. analogy so we'll pull okay. up a word and then just an analogy to do with sort of the themes we've been talking about today around mm-hmm. that um word so I'll do nouns to make it a little bit easier
0: okay
2: oh the random word is cooperation there are an analogy surrounding cooperation. So
0: do you want a true life story or just like a, an that
2: one. one? I'd like like a the true life story. story. Yeah. yeah, that'd be better. Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah, so cooperation. So I think, um, so we're working hard on this at the moment at Action for Children within the regional team. And I think a lot of charities are starting to talk about, you know, and in the cheesiest way, they I think they call it like one team, one dream. There's a lot of that going on. Um, but actually, it's something that I feel really strongly about. And I think that collaboration and that joint approach is what's really going to unlock the potential for charity sport, particularly post pandemic. So we did a lot of work at, um, at Teenage Cancer Trust, and I'm trying and, try, and replicating the work at Action for Children in that as opposed to I think historically within um, regional teams the kind of so the corporate income line for example that sits with regional is the regional corporate and then you've got the national corporate somewhere over here and never the twain will meet Um, but actually I think what we're seeing now is some really collaborative examples of where actually by working much closer together but on the national and and the regional income for corporate you can really unlock some huge successes Mm -hmm. Um, and I think examples of that for for example Action for Children with the John Lewis um, partnership obviously that was a partnership that was won um, and, and achieved through the national corporate team and they worked incredibly hard to secure that however key to the success of that was The support from the regional team who were able to go out and about and go into those branches, talk to those um, employees on the ground, as well as really deliver the the regional impact that that partnership was going to have across those stores and across that national chain. So yeah, I think cooperating more as cross teams across charities is what will really unlock that potential income for charities across the sector, particularly post-pandemic.
2: Yeah, my analogy was going to be similar in that I think for charities to thrive, you have to have the cooperation of your fundraising team, your CEOs, your recruitment team, so your donors, true. everything. It all it does all rely on it's such a in-tuned balance, isn't it? And yeah, passing across that knowledge from sector to yeah. sector can only, only strengthen the cause. And, yeah, and then on the more negative side of that, if there was a bit more cooperation in the government with various sectors within perhaps we wouldn't need so many charities but so true
0: <laughs> yeah i watched question time last night and that definitely shone through <laughs>
2: uh-huh yeah yeah <laughs> what about you jason anything um, to add i've been listening
1: so i haven't been thinking about mine and yes i honestly can't add anything here <laughs> i was gonna say something about cooperation when it comes to there was a lot of different types of funding you guys get I thought that mm-hmm. was interesting because I didn't mm-hmm. realize quite so many different types from corporate to the person yeah. who pays two pounds a month, uh, to, you know, there's a range yeah. of people and that, that surprised me as to how different you obviously then have to speak to those people. Like, yeah. and that must be a whole task in itself. Like, who, do you, who, who, How do you know how to do that? Like That comes with experience, I'm assuming, and you hire <laughs> people on that basis.
0: Um, yeah definitely yeah and i think within our team so for example just in the regional team i have a team of amazing senior managers who are all who all have real um targeted specialisms and so yeah they and we work really hard on things like supporter journeys and how we segment and and who our supporters are and how they like to be spoken to and yeah it's really yeah it's really kind of quite cut down because you know at the end of the day we need to make those supporters feel valued we need to surprise and delight them is is a term that we use a lot in the in the sector at the moment and we need to make sure we're talking to them in the way that they want to be talk, spoken to so yeah mm-hmm. quite a lot of analysis goes on
1: <laughs> awesome but well, that um that kind of concludes um the episodes uh, we obviously always give um i guess a chance to kind of beat the drum for anything that they're really passionate about at the moment um, or talk about anything they'd like to raise some awareness to so um here's Mm -hmm. your your chance to do that
0: oh wow (laughs) on the spot um yeah i think that well the one thing that we're working really um hard on at the moment i think at action for children is and i cannot believe i'm going to say this at this point of the year what we in march is our secret santa campaign um, so i would urge anybody that's listening to to check it out to give it a share to have a think at how they can um how they can support and spread that message because it really is an incredible campaign we're really really proud of it we want it to be one of the best in the sector so if anybody has um has any way they can support us with that please do get in touch
2: Brilliant, and awesome. we'll, link to, we'll link to that in our podcast notes as well for anyone who wants to check it out. Fab.
1: Brilliant. Any, uh, any final thoughts from you,
2: Astrid? No, nothing from me. Just thank you very much, Katie. Um, it's been oh, really Really good to have you on. Fabulous. Maybe you thank
1: could you. say goodbye in a non-European language.
2: Oh, no, I only know how to open conversations, not close. them. Yeah, me too, right? (laughs) Because I never stop talking, I never actually say bye. (laughs) I've still got conversations going on in in China from 10 years ago.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, thank you so much for coming on.
2: Pleasure,
0: thank you. Thank you.
1: Bye.